Our text this Thanksgiving service, it will be Psalm 65. You have it there before you, printed. Please follow along as I read it. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh shall come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges softening it with showers and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together. For joy. Amen. All right. Thanks to the Lord for the reading of his word. Let's pray together now. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, you are great and do marvelous things. You showered your mercy upon us in countless ways. As sinners, you've rescued us from our sins. As weak humans, we rest in your power. And we are helpless, Lord, but you sustain our lives. You've generously given us food and shelter, necessities of life. Most of all, O oh Lord, you've sent your Son to atone for our sins and bring us into your fellowship. Now send your Spirit, we pray, to open up our understanding of this psalm, to see what it teaches us about you and how it reveals your will for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, today is what we are designating Thanksgiving Sunday, the Sunday before our national holiday on Thursday. And the Lord has led us, I believe, to study this psalm together, Psalm 65. It's a psalm of David. Actually, David wrote 75 of the 150 psalms. David was a poet. He was a shepherd. He was a warrior. He was a king. He was a songwriter and a devoted worshiper of Yahweh. So let's see what we can learn from this psalm that David wrote as the Holy Spirit, we trust, will guide us today. The title, the heading of the psalm says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. So we see specifically how this psalm was to be used. It was to be used in a choir. David wrote it for the choir master to use to train his choir to sing it. Now they would sing at the temple in Jerusalem. So King David was an accomplished musician, which is a good skill to have in the worship of God. After all, the great God of the universe, the head of the church, is to be sung to. He's to be praised in poetry and in song. His praise is the greatest of all causes for singing and rejoicing. And this singing and rejoicing is not just an individual exercise, but it reaches its height of joy and power when it's sung in the midst of the congregation, the congregation of worshipers. Psalm 116, verse 14 is one of my favorite texts in the Old Testament. It says this, I will pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of all his people. Not in my backyard, in my garden, but where? I'll pay my vows to Yahweh in the presence of his people. It's in the presence of God's people that our worship reaches its fullest expression and completion. In ancient Israel, there were three religious festivals every year that the people were required to go to Jerusalem and attend at the temple. In the spring, first of all, there was the barley harvest, which began with Passover and continued with Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. Fifty days later, there was Pentecost, the wheat harvest, and then in the fall, September, October, was the Feast of Tabernacles, the fruit harvest. And so the people would travel to Jerusalem from wherever they lived in the land, and there they would offer animals as sacrifices for their sins at the temple to the priest. And they would participate in the worship of Yahweh, which would be led by the skilled choir singers. You remember Jesus, when he was 12 years old, made one of those trips that was recorded for us uh, to Jerusalem. That was evidently the custom of his pious family who obeyed the law of the Lord. 
Well, this worship at the temple in Jerusalem was a vital part of the religious life of the Hebrew people. They'd leave their fields unattended. They'd leave their tools, they'd hang them up, and they would go down to Jerusalem. From Nazareth, it's 91 miles to Jerusalem. So that's a two or three day journey by walking. Well, as we read the Psalms, we're carried back to an understanding of the mindset of the Jewish worshipers of Yahweh. They knew that he alone was God, that he alone was the creator of all things. He was the sender of rain upon the earth and the sender of every blessing that humanity enjoys. He was the holy God of power, but of tender mercy. Steadfast love and faithfulness are two attributes of God that are often spoken of in the Old Testament. Yahweh God gave his people his law. He made them aware of their sin and rebellion. Yet he was a redeeming God. When they went to the temple, they could carry animals or they could buy them there in Jerusalem. Sheep, cows, goats, pigeons, and offer them as substitutionary sacrifices for their own sins. So innocent animals were slain and their blood was poured out because of people's sins. The innocent died for the guilty. Well, if anyone loved Yahweh, it was King David. In spite of his sins, and we know some of his sins, he was a great example of a man who loved God. For example, he wrote in Psalm 18, <coughs> verse 1 and 2, I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my rock, my God in whom I take refuge. So this is often the kind of love and praise that David would pour out to Yahweh. Well, Psalm 65, verse 1, begins like this. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. So the main subject here of this psalm is going to be praise. The praise that is due to God, the praise that he deserves. We often use this praise, this word praise in Christian circles, but what does it really mean? What does the word praise mean? Well, it actually comes from a Latin word, uh, prediare, meaning to prize something. So to praise God is to consider him a great prize. To praise God means to acknowledge how great he is, to recognize all the attributes, the characteristics of his being, such as his creatorship, his power, his sovereignty. To praise him means to be in awe and wonder before him and to express this awe and wonder in thoughts, and then in words, in songs, and rejoicing. Praise is the joyful exclamation to God of his greatness. It is tied to worship and to thanksgiving. The praise of God naturally leads us to thanksgiving for who he is and all that he does. 
praise and thankfulness to God issue forth in worship and adoration of his person. Verse 1 says, Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. Well, why is praise due to God? This psalm speaks of three major reasons why praise is due to God. Here's the three reasons. Praise is due to God for his merciful kindness to his people. Praise is due to God for his majestic power over creation. And praise is due to God for his abundant provision for the earth. Now, most of our time is going to be spent on the first point here because there's so much there for his merciful kindness to his people. So let's consider that first of all. The scripture says in verse 1, Praise is, to you, praise is due to you, O God in Zion. Two things I want to point out here. The text says is praise is due to you. Praise is not given to creation, to the universe, to the earth, but to a person. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, pointed out this small thing, but I thought it was insightful, that praise is personal here. It's not an abstract principle, but it's focused on the person of God. It's a relationship. Praise, you're worthy of praise. It's directed to God. You yourself, O Yahweh, are the one who has done these great things. And secondly, this praise to God, this personal relationship of praise does not just come from anywhere on the earth. It only comes from Zion. Well, what is Zion? Zion is the place on earth where God meets with his people. Traditionally, under the old covenant, it was in Jerusalem at the temple where God's special presence dwelt in the very center of the temple in the Holy of Holies. Above the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat, between the cherubim, his presence dwelt there on earth. That's why these devoted Jewish people wanted to go to Jerusalem to be in the presence of God. That's why David wanted to be in the temple. There was God's holy presence. And it was there at the center of the temple in the very in a room, the Holy of Holies, on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest would take blood for his own sins and blood for the sins of the nation. And he would go sprinkle it on the mercy seat to cover the sins for another year. So praise comes from Zion. It doesn't come from the pagan nations. They don't know Yahweh. They worship False gods, idols. It was only the Hebrew people who had this special revelation of the nature of God. He had revealed himself to them. And he expected that they would respond in praise and worship and commitment. Well, where is Zion today? We're here. We're in Zion right now. We're in a place where God meets his people in the local church. 
Jesus Christ, our Lord, is here today. You cannot see him, but by his Spirit, he's here with us. His presence is with us. We've come together to worship God. God is the focus of our gathering today. The church meets on the Lord's Day. Most Christians do, not all. But what is the thing chiefly that is due from us when we meet together? This text says this, praise is due from us. God meets with us so that we can worship him. We need to come together to praise him, to give him glory, honor, rejoice before him. Amen. We can be sitting in a chair in a church service. But that doesn't necessarily mean, mean we're worshiping. The worship has to come internally from our hearts, from our minds, issuing forth our voices, our hands. We have to engage ourselves in the praise of God. It takes effort, mental discipline and effort, keeping other thoughts away, focusing on God. Praise is due from us. We owe God something. He's given us everything. We owe him our praise. Now, praise is not burdensome to us. It is our delight. Yes, we have problems, big problems, and stresses in life. But we can't let these things interfere with giving God his rightful praise. No matter the problems on earth, God is in heaven. He has not changed. He's worthy of our praise. Our problems will come and go, but God is a stable one. He does not change. He is altogether lovely, glorious in his holy splendor, totally wise in all of his actions. His love for us as people never lessens or fades. Amen. It is steadfast and faithful. Therefore, we need to praise Him. Let's all say praise the Lord. Praise, praise the, the Lord. Lord. Amen. The second half of verse 1 says this. To you shall vows be performed. We're not too familiar with that kind of expression. What, is, what does that mean? What are vows? Well, they're promises of commitment to God. For example, in the Hebrew nation a couple thousand years ago, perhaps a Hebrew man had a friend, and the friend died. And so the Hebrew man makes a vow to Yahweh, Yahweh, I am going to take care of my friend's family and be sure they don't go hungry. They have the necessities of life. So he makes a vow to God. I'm going to do this. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this text, said this regarding vows. He said, any believer's special play, pledge that he makes should be piously and punctually fulfilled. A vow unkept will burn the conscience like a hot iron. They are no trifles. They should be fulfilled to the utmost of our prayer. I read this and I got convicted. I'd made a promise to somebody 
a few months ago and I hadn't kept it. I need to get on the stick <laughs> and complete that promise I made to this person. So we need to be people of our word, right? Not make our vows lightly, but when we make them to fulfill them. God is faithful to keep his promises, and we as people need to be faithful to keep our promises to him and to other people. Now, in verses 2 through 6, David lays out five examples of God's merciful kindness to his people. He says in verse 2, O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. So God's merciful kindness is shown in that God hears the prayers of his people. Now this is no small matter. It is in fact quite amazing. Why should the holy God hear the prayers of sinful people? They're unholy and he's holy. God's concerned for his own glory and people are concerned for their own glory. God's concerned for the accomplishment of his will on the earth. People are concerned for their own wills, their own private agendas. God is not obligated to answer prayers of sinners. But in love and mercy, he does answer the prayers of his people. God has an active relationship with his people. There's a dialogue going on between us and him. We pray to him. He wants us to pray to him. And he answers according to his will. For example, in the Old Testament, you remember when the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, was bringing his mighty, destructive armies up against Jerusalem and threatening to overrun it in short order. Hezekiah was the king. He was terrified because... The Syrian army had destroyed other nations. And so he got Isaiah the prophet. <coughs> he began to pray. Hezekiah said, So now, O Yahweh our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Isaiah 37, 20. And you know how God answered this prayer? It says the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. God sovereignly answered the prayer of Hezekiah. Great example that God does answer the prayers of his people. Now Hezekiah was no angel. He had sins. But he prayed that Yahweh would be glorified on the earth. And Yahweh answered, honored that prayer. Well, how can God answer the prayers of sinners? The reason he does this, the way he, he does this, is because of what we see in verse 3. <clears throat> when iniquities prevail against me, writes David, you atone for our transgressions. So God's merciful kindness is shown in that he atones for the transgressions of his people. David says, when iniquities prevail against me, he said, when my sins overwhelm me, when I yield to temptation and fall into sin, 
I get myself in big trouble. But something else happens. That's not the end of the story. All is not lost. Why? Because God himself steps in and does something radical and unexpected. He atones for our transgressions. See, the text begins like this. When iniquities prevail against me, that's David. But then he brings everybody else in and he says, Amen. He atones for our transgressions. He and the other people of God were all in need of cleansing. Well, what are transgressions? Here's a fancy definition by John Murray. He said, transgression is a violation of that which God's glory demands of us and is therefore, in its essence, the contradiction of God that it, it opposes God. A violation of that which God's glory demands of us. A little more simply, it's in essence breaking or violating the law of God. What does the word atone mean? Atonement. Let me read you a good description of this word. Atonement. It's used over a hundred times in the Old Testament. Primarily in the Pentateuch, the first five books. It's usually in the context of a sacrifice. Either a blood sacrifice or the payment of a certain amount of money. The idea is that a person or thing is unclean due to sin or some other defilement. Then with a payment or a sacrifice, atonement is made for that person or thing and it is now holy and acceptable because of the sacrifice paid. For example, Leviticus chapter 5 verse 5 talks about the procedure a person should follow when they realize they've sinned. It says here, when he realizes his guilt in any of these sins, such as a rash oath to do evil, he realizes his guilt and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. So the blood of the animal is poured out as an atonement for the man's sin. The Israelites had this method to deal with their sins, provided by the law of Moses. But we learn in the New Testament very clearly that this sacrificing of animals, this atonement provided by the blood of animals, was only a temporary covering or removal of sins. It took the shed blood of the Son of God to truly remove sins. John the Baptist saw him one day and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His blood did completely and finally remove sins. The book of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 13, For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of, defi of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. If they do that, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
So the blood of these animals sanctified for the purification of the flesh. It was an outward activity, but inwardly, the cleansing of the conscience was provided only by the blood of Christ. Complete and total cleansing. It says in chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 11, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They're a reminder of sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that's on the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Old Testament talks about atonement for sins. Here's the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The gospel is introduced in the Old Testament. It's fulfilled, completed, and revealed in the coming of Christ. Now there's another merciful kindness that we can praise God for. Verse 4. It says this, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. They shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. So, we praise God for his merciful kindness in choosing us and bringing us to be near to himself by dwelling in his courts. This is amazing, that the holy God would desire to have fellowship with sinful people in spite of the fact that he cannot even stand to look upon sin. He has done what is necessary to bring his people near to him so that they can worship him. And this is done because of the atoning work of the Son of God. So these people in ancient Israel traveled three times a year to the temple so they could be near to the presence of God, so they could make sacrifices for their sins. That's why when the temple was destroyed, I think it was 586 by the Babylonians, and later in 70 AD by the Romans, twice their temple was destroyed, and it devastated the people emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually because the place where they worshipped, where God's presence was destroyed. Can you imagine that? They were carried off to a foreign land, to Babylon, the first time. Here was the one place on earth where one could draw near to the very presence of Yahweh. But it was burned down and thrown to the ground by foreign armies. How do we draw near to God? Our temple is gone. Here's the answer. God drew near to the Hebrew people when he left heaven's throne and he was born of the Virgin Mary. The incarnation of the Son of God is the way God drew near to his people. Most of them, however, did not recognize him. 
But it was Jesus' atonement that brought about the permanent removal of the sin of God's people. His resurrection and ascension resulted in the outpouring of the Spirit upon His people so that Jesus the Messiah could be with them every day and know His presence. The new covenant was established in the blood of Christ and through Christ's shed blood and resurrection. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon God's people so they can draw near to Him no matter where they are on earth. Those people who are in prison for Christ today and some other countries, they're not separated from Jesus. He's with them. His presence is with them to comfort them and help them in their trials. But the special presence of Christ with his people is manifested supremely when we meet together for worship. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. When we gather together for worship, Jesus is there with us. In the New Testament, we see that after his resurrection, on that first resurrection Sunday, Jesus met with his disciples. And the next Sunday, he met with his disciples. So the first day of the week became the model, the time for meeting, for worship, to worship the risen, ascended Christ. Who are the ones who gather to meet with Christ on the Lord's day? It's those whom he has chosen out of the world to be his children. We see in Psalm 65 says, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to your courts. The reason we are able to come near to God and worship him is because he has chosen us. He chose us out of the world to be his own beloved people, to gather before him as his body on earth, as his bride, to worship him, to learn of him through his word. Another reason, verse 5, why we should praise Yahweh for his merciful <coughs> kindness. Look at verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. God is to be praised for his merciful kindness in dealing with us in righteousness <coughs> to bring us to salvation. How does God deal with his people? He's not slack with his people. He doesn't wink at our sin. He deals with us in his righteousness. There's no other way that God can deal with us because that is his very nature. He cannot deny himself. But how can a righteous God draw near to a sinful people? Again, the only way is through the atonement of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ on Calvary's cross, the pouring out of his blood to wash away our sins. God maintained his own righteousness by punishing our sins and the person of his son. So our sins were paid in full 
they were removed. Therefore, God can welcome us into his presence without compromising his own righteousness. Now, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, at times in his pre-conversion life, hated God because he knew God was so righteous and his standard was so high that it was impossible for a sinful human to be cleansed of sin to enter his presence. But then Luther discovered something after much agony that the righteousness of the Son of God could be granted to a sinful human by faith, by faith in Christ, by looking to Christ, looking at his blood, to his blood, to his righteousness, to be applied to a sinful man. Verse 5 gave the Israelites hope. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth. King David wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was telling God's people that in spite of their sins, He was the God of salvation. He was going to save them. He was going to rescue them from the atoning work of the Messiah that would come in the future. He was the hope of all the peoples of the earth. Well, this is the first reason God's peoples are to praise Him. Four specific ways. Because He hears the prayers of His people. Because He atones for the transgressions of His people. Because He chooses them to come near to Him and worship. And He deals with us and righteousness to bring us to salvation through Christ. There's a lot more that could be said about this psalm. Other reasons to praise God. In verses 6 through 9, we see His majestic power over all creation, over nature, over the nations of the earth. He raised up the mountains. He stills the roaring seas. Verse 7 says, he also stills the tumult of the peoples. Not only the roaring seas, but the tumult of the peoples. Tumult means the evil, the violence, the confusion, the brutality among the peoples of the earth. Now we've seen a lot of that lately, the last couple of years, in our world. In Ukraine, in the Israeli-Palestinian war, We've seen acts of violence in our own country, in our own city. But God's going to bring all this to an end. When Jesus returns, all this evil will promptly vanish. One more major idea here is that God is to be praised for his abundant provision on the earth. He brings rain to water the earth. He causes the plants and crops to grow. He brings and maintains life. Verse 12 says, The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. And they shout and sing together for joy. So Hebrew poetry sometimes presents nature itself as singing to God in joy for his provision of the earth. 
It's an incentive for people to also praise God. So this is a time of national thanksgiving in our country. It's a reminder to us of how thankful we should be to God for all of his mercy and provision to us. So from this psalm, we have learned that our God, Yahweh, is to be praised for his mercy and hearing the prayers of his people, for his merciful kindness in atoning for the transgressions of his people. He should be praised for his merciful kindness in choosing us to come before him in worship here in 2023 in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Allowing us to come into his presence, to come before him in congregational worship. This is no slight matter. This is the ordination and the purpose of God for us Amen. as his people. God's to be praised for dealing with us in righteousness through the death and resurrection of his son to bring us to salvation. For all praise and glory be to God for his ample provisions for us. For salvation in Jesus our Lord and for the provision of the necessities of life. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we are indeed a people most blessed of all the peoples of the earth, for you brought us into the fellowship of your Son. And through his sacrifice on the cross, you atoned for our sins. And now we can know him as our resurrected Lord by the presence of your Spirit. We praise you and thank you for giving us the things most needed in life, in our lives, that is the removal of our sins and a warm welcome into the fellowship of your presence. You've been gracious to us in every area of our lives. Praise be to you, now and forever, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.